Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to pray for uh, another church in our community. We want to start this um, or continue our morning as we're about to go into the sermon, lifting up a brother and his family. I want to pray for Kelly Regan um, and pray for his family, Lord. I pray that you would bless his marriage and his uh, relationship with his kids. And Lord, I pray that he is being governed by and fueled by and sustained by the gospel. I pray that he is walking and serving and living by faith and not by sight. I pray that the things that he sees and experiences will, um, will be secondary to what he knows is true that he is enjoying and seeing as he walks with you. Lord, I pray that you would guide him and sustain him and direct him to shepherd the people and pastor the people well at the church at River Oaks. Lord, we entrust him to you and ask you to bless him. Lord, we pray for the church at River Oaks. We pray for health. We pray for peace. We pray for unity. We pray for growth. We pray for maturity. Lord, we pray that they will grow up to the stature, the full measure of the stature of Christ, and they will be ready for Christ's return because they're doing the work of equipping. Uh, they're doing the work of walking out their gifting, that they're being the bride. Lord, we just pray for, for all great things at the church at River Oaks, and we're thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for a people group. I want to pray for Tunisian Arabs, a people group of 10.7 million strong, uh, of which uh, less than a percent uh, are Christian, uh, far less than a percent. Lord, we pray for workers to go to the field, and we pray that that would be combined with um, dreams and visions and ache and hunger and thirst and searching for answers and crying out to their creator, that that would be, that those dots would connect and that you would... Um, connect to this people group, Lord, that you would reach this people group, that they would have a church planting network that would begin to take root, uh, that something wonderful would happen in Tunisia among the Arab people group. Lord, we are entrusting them to you and thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, we continue in this month, we continue specifically and especially praying for missions. We pray that we as a people will be a missional people. We'll be mindful of our neighbors and our workmates and our friends those around us in our community that we may bump into, that we would be mindful of them and mindful of their souls. We would be loving them with the good news of Christ and that we would be inviting them into the, the journey of faith with the people of God. Lord, we are entrusting this time to you. I pray that you'll be glorified in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you're watching the news this week, uh, September of last year, a gal named Amber Geiger mistakenly walked into someone else's apartment, thinking she was walking to her own apartment, and shot the guy and killed him. His name was Botham Jean. Uh, the trial just happened this last few weeks, uh, and um, I think one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of salty, bright, aromatic faith was on display for the world to see this week. Botham Jean's brother, younger brother, Brant, I think Brant is 18 or so, something like that. Brant got on the stand, and I guess at the, toward the end of the trial, had the chance to share his thoughts about, the, uh, about Amber and about the whole situation. And he got on the stand, and he said he's expressing what he believes his brother, Botham, would have wanted to express, that he expressed love and forgiveness to Botham's killer. It was a profound moment. Um, 
he came around and he asked if he could come around and give Amber a hug, and he did that uh, with the judge's permission. It was really a profound moment. I thought, man, that's salty. Somebody, somebody has equipped that guy with what it means to be a saint. And the Holy Spirit is sustaining this guy in being a bright light in a dark world and salt in a decaying world. It was a beautiful sight to behold. And as if the thing couldn't get any better, the judge in the whole trial, Judge Kemp, at the conclusion of the trial, gave Amber Geiger a Bible. She came around the bench, and apparently she went to a separate room, maybe to her own office, and grabbed a Bible for Amber and came out and opened the Bible to John 3.16. And you could hear the news commentators. She's reading John 3.16 to Amber. She's leaning over her, sharing this passage and pouring out to her the great news of Christ's birth and life right there in the courtroom. One of the things that really struck me, too, was the news commentary. You could hear these commentators where they're trying to make sense. of. One of them said, well, it looks like she's, she's handing him a book. Maybe it's a legal book. He said, oh, no, it's a Bible. And you could hear them explaining or trying to explain. It sounds like, he's, sounds like she's reading John 3.16. Do you know what that means? Well, I know that people have it on their shirts. I know that people put it on their sports teams. I know it's kind of a thematic verse for Christians, and here's what I think it means. And this is on television, and I had goosebumps and tears all at the same time. I said, man, what a beautifully profound display of salt and light. Someone equipped them to be so radically different that the world would marvel. The situation found them, and man, they were salty in a decaying world and bright in a dark world. I thought it interesting that here we are in Matthew chapter 5, really dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, really a passage or a sermon, the entire sermon on being salty and bright. And man, these guys, I wonder how much time they spent in the Sermon on the Mount. We can't know that for sure. I think they had a Church of Christ background from what I read. And uh, from what I know of Church of Christ folks, they're pretty serious about moving through the Bible. I suspect that they had a diet of God's Word, and I wouldn't be surprised if they had a diet of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Salty sayings on radical life is what I would call this, this uh, section we're in right now called the Beatitudes. Salty sayings on a radical life. In this very same collection of salty sayings, Jesus is also promising, as he's calling his followers to be salty and bright, he's also promising them you're going to find some blessedness here. The word that actually is probably a better translation there is flourishing. Flourishing. Each of these beatitudes should start with the word flourishing. They mean wholeness is what's encouraged here. Those who are practicing and walking out these things as followers of Christ will find wholeness, happiness, blessedness, and what the Jews called shalom. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture, but it is surprising. Each of these Beatitudes, they break down into something called a protasis and an apodosis. The protasis is the first part of the Beatitude. The apodosis is the second part. And the protasis in each of these Beatitudes, you look at them and you just have to go, did he just say that? I mean, I wish I could have been on that mountainside 2,000 years ago to look at the faces. When he's saying flourishing are the poor in spirit, did, did he misspeak? Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
implying that they're experiencing some stark absence of it, like they're starving. That's flourishing is a surprising collection of protases. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness and humility, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, implying that you're, you're giving mercy to someone that doesn't deserve it. And this pure of heart, that's of the collection, maybe the mo- most easily digested. But the others, you look at them and go, man, that's wholeness? That's blessedness? That's flourishing? We're going to add to this list of proteses today another one that really is pretty surprising when you consider that the promise here, the assurance is that you're going to be flourishing the most, what I would just say, the most rewarding and easy and wonderful work of peacemaking. Okay, if you detected a little note of irony in that, and maybe even holy, maybe holy sarcasm, I hope, hopefully that'll come out in the next few minutes. We're going to have an honest reckoning with this notion of peacemaking from somebody who I will declare to you is far from an expert. Far from an expert. We're going to add to our collection of surprising windows into flourishing the rewarding and easy work of peacemaking. We're going to break these down this week, this particular uh, beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Between this week and next week, we're going to deal with the protasis this week and the apodosis next week. We're going to deal with the hard part this week, and next week we're going to deal with the, sort of the, the carrot. Okay, so the first part of this passage, I'll just read the whole passage since it's short. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're going to spend the whole morning on the first part of it. Blessed, flourishing, are the peacemakers. This term peacemakers is only found here. Okay, it's not found anywhere else in our Bible in a strict sense in the original language. Peacemakers is only found right here. And we're going to spend the morning sort of exploring what it is and exploring the flavor of it, really. What it, how it plays out, what to expect. But one of the things I really want to consider before we move on, and I sort of hit at this already just even in the introduction, before considering what it is, I want us to just be really honest and consider that peacemaking is in some way in league with a list of other really hard things. Okay, before we even really consider what it is, just consider it is in league with being poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and being merciful. It is guilty by association of being something that's likely something you would want to avoid. Okay, let's just be really honest this morning. We're reckoning and talking, we're reckoning with and talking about something that is something we would likely want to avoid. Let's start right there, honestly and openly. It's guilty by association of being something that is likely something you would naturally avoid, maybe because it is super-duper, absolutely, incredibly, excruciatingly hard. You could add to the grouping what comes right after it, being persecuted and being reviled. That's why I like to see the faces on those that Jesus preached to on that mountainside 2,000 years ago. As he's sharing these things, there's a certain amount of decreation that takes place in proper preaching. And I expect that there was some decreation taking place as he's exposing over the course of the sermon what these look like in the life of the follower of Christ. That people are sitting there going, I'm beginning to feel undone. If you never feel undone from a sermon, then maybe you're not hearing the full counsel. This is a, if the Sermon on the Mount is ever a place where you're going to be undone, uh, if there ever a place you're going to be undone, it's going to be the Sermon on the Mount. 
So I'm preaching undone this morning. And I'm hoping that you enjoy, join me in these next few minutes in being completely undone. Because I have to just tell you, in my experience, the work of peacemaking is not rewarding. It's not. At least not in the short term. We'll get into that here in these next few minutes. It may be the most difficult part of the faith journey that I've ever experienced. Yet here it is. Right here on this mount 2,000 years ago. And right here in Matthew chapter 5. And right here where we are as a people on... I can't read my watch. Sixth, what is today? Sixth? Close enough. Of October 2019. Here we are. And if we're hearing it, if we can just consider that Rainey heard what she needed to hear back in Ephesians chapter 5 on the time that she needed to hear it, then maybe we as a people are in this room on this day because we need to reckon with the notion of peacemaking. Let's climb into what it is or what it looks like. These Beatitudes, in some ways, they sort of play out in some ways in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Not completely, not exhaustively. But we're going to look at a few windows in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, outside of the Beatitudes, east of the Beatitudes. And then we're going to look at another passage in the book of James. And that's really all we're going to do this morning. Okay, So let me show you some windows into what we might call sort of the flavor of peacemaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Look across the page at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, we haven't preached this passage yet. We haven't really gotten there to expose it. Okay, But let's just, just consider that we're talking about brothers, that physical brothers. We're talking about spiritual brothers. We're talking about those that we're close with. Okay, If you're experiencing, here you are, uh, you're, you're offering your gift at the altar. and says, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you're offering your gift at the altar there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We're talking about something as ordinary as being crossways with your brother. I've got two brothers, two physical brothers, and I know exactly and absolutely how to be crossways with a brother. I've got a host of spiritual brothers. I know also how to be crossways with a spiritual brother. I suspect that anybody in this room, if we're really honest, can relate to this notion of being crossways with our brother. So here we are, this, this calling to peacemaking, this identification as a follower of Christ, and the peacemaking application, at least in this first little window, is that we pause the vertical relationship with the living God and go to the horizontal crossways brother and we do the absolute very best that we can to reconcile with them before we even resume worship to the living God. Man, peacemaking is like urgent. Just with that little window. Even before we've really developed what it is, it looks like it's really urgent. It looks like something that, wait a second, we're going to pause our worship to the living God, hit the pause button, and go find that brother that we're crossways with and do the best we can to reconcile with them and then come back and make our offering. Huh. 
That's profound. Let's look at the next verse, verses 25 and 26. Some more windows into the flavor and the tenor and the texture of peacemaking. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Okay, here we're dealing with something as common as crossways with our brother. Here we're dealing with something as common as lawsuits. I've never been part of a lawsuit. I'm 51 years old. I hope that I could live my whole life and never be in part of one. But you got to know it's really common. You got to know it's very common material for people to be involved in some sort of legal matters. And here, the peacemaking application for those real common matters are to end legal conflicts quickly by agreeing to an out of court settlement, at least in this case. Like an eagerness. Let's get this thing over with and behind us so that we can move forward. It's an agreeable disposition from this little window into the disposition of the peacemaker. Let's skip on over to verse 38. Another little window. We have this window and one more. Beginning in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone should, uh, uh, should sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This might seem a little less common, but we're really talking about people that are, are wanting to take advantage of you, people that are wanting to presume on you, people that are wanting to borrow from you even. We're still talking about some pretty routine daily things, and the peacemaking application in this one is to refrain from retaliating against those who abuse you. To refrain from retaliating against those who abuse you And here's the last one in verse 43. Last little window. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even... The Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here, the peacemaking application is to love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. I'm just thinking of this little collection, these things that we sort of grabbed up here, these windows into the ministry of peacemaking, that all of them have a flavor of peace-seeking. There's all that kind of have this verb tone to them where people are going out of their comfort zones and stepping off into really difficult places and seeking the peace in the middle of some terribly difficult and common circumstances. As common as being crossways with a brother. As common as a lawsuit. As common as people taking advantage of you or presuming on you or borrowing from you. And as common as actually having an enemy and experiencing persecution. If we were to only glean windows from the Sermon on the Mount on peacemaking, we would pretty much nearly have enough. I don't like the thought of a really short sermon, so we're going to go a little bit further than that. 
But if we were to only glean from the Sermon on the Mount, we could glean these things. Peacemaking refuses to postpone apologies and make restitution. It refuses to postpone apologies, I should say, or make restitution. I'm not going to drag my feet in apologizing. And I'm not going to drag my feet in making it right with a brother. It also refuses to seek revenge and it serves his or her enemies. Ultimately, it's having a love for one another that's stronger than your hatred of one another. Can I say that again? It's ultimately having a love for one another that's stronger than your hatred for one another. As I wrote those words, I thought, man, that kind of sounds easy because I don't imagine anybody in our church would ever experience hatred. It sounds really easy. You know, I'm thinking about in the classroom, when you sit in the classroom and the teacher's putting some notes on the board and it's in chalk and you've got it in your, your, book, your, your notebook there and you're writing it down and you're sitting there in that sterile classroom, classroom it really feels really nice and tidy and easy until you're actually in it. Until you're actually getting slapped in the face. Until someone's actually taking your tunic. Until someone is actually presuming on you. Until you have an occasion to go, man, I really want to choke you. But I'm at, instead of being called here to pray for you. Okay, now, it sounds really easy in the classroom, but where you're really in it, it is excruciating. Talking about these things is easy. Doing these things is a whole nother matter. But we have to go back to the notion that Christ is presenting here. It's in these things that we truly find flourishing. It's in these things that we truly find flourishing. All right, turn to the book of James. This is where we're going to end our morning, spend the rest of our morning, I should say. James chapter 3. I'll give you a minute to turn there. I'm sure in my preparation for preaching James and reading, there are commentaries on Matthew and there are commentaries just on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like whole commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. And climbing into these commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure I read this at some point, but it didn't register for me until preparing for this particular sermon, is the connection between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Some of y'all probably know, maybe not all of you know, James was a younger brother of Jesus. Jesus didn't have any older brothers. You know, born of a virgin, didn't have any older sisters. He's the oldest. James was a younger brother of Jesus. James was also likely believed to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so this guy is a local pastor right under the flagpole in Jerusalem. All right? You can imagine how hard life was for him growing up in the shadow of Jesus. Why can't you be like your brother, James? This would have been a terrible beatdown. James, the younger brother of Jesus, apparently his bread and butter was the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we don't know if that played out in the local church where he pastored, but I suspect it did. Because this book, this book of James, let me just give you some windows, and this is not exhaustive, into the parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. Both of them, the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, deal with mercy. Both deal with mourning. Both deal with rejoicing and being glad in trials. And just in the Beatitudes already, those are connections. Both deal with being perfect and complete. Both deal with avoiding sinful anger. Both deal with being doers and not just hearers. Both the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James deal with God's heart for the poor. Both indicate that you'll be recognized by your fruits. Both encourage asking and receiving. Both encourage serving God. 
versus being friends with the world. Both the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James encourage being slow to judge. Both of them discourage laying up treasures on earth. Both the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James point out God's provision for tomorrow. And both of them even deal with something as simple as oaths. Oaths. And that's, again, that's not exhaustive. It's striking when you realize that we can turn to the book of James and in some ways have a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so we're going to take advantage of that this morning. And we're going to peer in to James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 to try and make sense of this notion of peacemaking. Knowing now that we believe that James is using the same substrate, ironically, that we're using this morning. James is using the same material, we believe, the Sermon on the Mount that we're preaching from this morning. That we're in league with the church of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The only difference is the location and the time. Okay, but if James is teaching his church 2,000 years ago and teaching the believers in the diaspora all over the Roman Empire that we're dealing with the same material, the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of exciting. We're like, oh, man, we get to step into something that's ancient? We get to step into this ancient material of what James is dealing with in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Where he's going to help us make sense of peacemaking, of really the, the tone and the tenor of peacemaking. We're going to just jump right in in verse 17 and 18, then we're going to peer out a little bit and try and get some context. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's just deal right, establish right off the bat that according to James, wisdom from above, from above is about the work of peacemaking. Okay, He doesn't say that it's pragmatically sensible. He says it's wisdom from above. He doesn't promise it's going to work. And in fact, we're going to deal with that here in just a moment. All right. I told you it's, it hasn't been rewarding for me. And if I were thinking pragmatically, I'm not going to put my hand on that stove again because that heart hurts. But we can't, we're talking about wisdom from above. We're going to establish right off the bat, according to James, this is wisdom from above is about the work of peacemaking. Okay, so let's see what he says here in verse 18. This is sort of a clue, a window into what to expect in this peacemaking venture. He says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm going to read it again because it's a little bit hard to, to understand. A harvest of righteousness, just envision like a wagon full of righteousness, you know, an old farm wagon filled with some righteousness. Okay, this harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace. Here's the thing that really just clobbered me this week and really encouraged me at the same time. This realization is that peacemakers produced a harvest of righteousness. I was kind of expecting that peacemakers, if he's called us to do something, if it's something that we are to do as, part of, as, as an identity of those who are following Christ, that in, in the effort of making peace, that we're actually going to make some peace. Cake makers do what? They make cakes, right, Emily? Yeah. Candlestick makers, what do they do? They make candlesticks. Peacemakers, though, apparently make something a little bit different. They make a harvest of righteousness. This passage does not say, there's no promise here, that a harvest of peace is going to be sown in peace by those who make peace. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Then we could say pragmatically, this is wise. This is absolutely the smart thing to do, is be about the work of peacemaking, because what you go after, you're going to actually make the cake that you're aiming to make. 
But James is making the point here, you're going to actually yield a harvest of righteousness. He doesn't say you're going to yield a harvest of peace. Man, that just clobbered me. We just need to consider that and just take that in for a moment. I want you to take all your scenarios, all the conflicts that you're part of in this room and realize, okay, this notion of peacemaking, if we're to put our hand to something that, that is part and parcel to following Christ, being a peacemaker, that your goal shouldn't necessarily be a peaceful outcome. Absolutely hope for that. But according to this passage, what you really should be aiming for is a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. Okay. So peacemakers are sowing a harvest of righteousness. This is the fruit that produces righteousness or the fruit that is righteousness is what he's saying here. And the fruit in James, okay, that is righteousness is conduct that is pleasing to God. That's the fruit of righteousness. Conduct that is pleasing to God. And in contrast to that is every evil practice. Okay, we're going to develop that here in a moment. We're going to pan out and look at the passages around James's dealing of peacemaking. But let me just point this out. Peacemaking is less about making peace and more about moving righteously. We can make an idol of pragmatism and not even realize it. Say, well, if it's not, it's not working, then we, we just need to stop doing it. If I were to take my own history with efforts at peacemaking, I would say, my, no thanks. That's hard. Have you ever tried to break up a fight between two people? What happens to you when you try and break up a fight between two people? You get socked in the kisser. And it's even worse when you're one of the two people and you're trying to bring peace into that situation. Man, it's a mess. But thankfully, we're not called to pragmatism. We're called to righteousness. You understand that, people of God? If you're taking your situation of conflict right now and you're thinking, man, this is absolutely something I've got to step off into and launch off into as a peacemaker because I'm following Christ and that's what I do as wool is to the sheep. That's who I am. Well, don't, you can hope for peace, but more than that, you should be hoping for a harvest of righteousness because it's the right thing to do. Not because it's, you think it's going to work or not. You do it because it's right. Not because you think it's going to be effective. Pragmatism says, hmm, no thanks. I think worship says, this is, a, this is a little theme that Christy shared with me the other day that we're using in our house that I think, man, I love it. I just love it. It's just a simple phrase. Do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. Don't overthink it. Don't strategize. Don't think big picture. Don't what if things to death. What if I say this? What if I do that? What if I don't do this? What if I don't do this? Just do the next right thing. And making peace is the next right thing for whatever that conflict situation is you're thinking about or have experienced in this room or outside this room. It's just the next right thing. That's what worshipers do. Now let's pan out and let's look at what's going on around this passage. Look up at verse 13. This is, I think, hopefully going to connect to you is why we're spending the time on this this morning and why I think it's God's timing that we are here as a church. 
beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly wisdom, unspiritual wisdom, demonic wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And look at chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Let me just point out that what surrounds this encouragement to peacemaking and this encouragement to this equipping for what to expect is all manner of crazy stuff. If you believe that James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, if you believe what historians believe, this guy's a pastor, he's speaking from experience, and here are the words that he's using about life together. He's talking about life together in the church in Jerusalem. Crosspoint Fellowship, he's not talking about life in Jerusalem. He's talking about life together as part of the church. In this infant church right under the flagpole in Jerusalem, here are the things that he's experiencing as a pastor of the local church. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, disorder, wars and fights. And if you think he's talking about somebody else, what does he say in chapter 4, verse 1? He says, among you. Man, that blew my mind. I have but one thought this morning, and it's going to fall right on the heels of this. I'm going to develop this over the next few minutes. If the marker of a follower of Christ is peacemaking, if that was preached on a mountain 2,000 years ago, then it implies that conflict is not something new. It was around apparently 2,000 years ago enough that they needed someone to bring peace. It's at least 2,000 years ago the need for peace because at least 2,000 years worth of experience tells us conflict existed then as well. The need for peacemakers is as old as the sermon. And looking back, if you go peer back beyond 2,000 years ago, if you go back ahead of the Gospels, west of the Gospels, okay, look back in that Old Testament, man, you find page after page, occasion after occasion, full of conflict. There's hardly a story that doesn't involve some measure of tension, some measure of anxiety, some measure of struggle, fatigue, and difficulty. Man, there's angst on every page, in every book, in every story, occasionally from without. Occasionally it's the Assyrians or the Philistines or the Hittites or Jebusites. But usually it's from within in and among God's people. Man, just let that hit you for a moment. Can we start right there for just a few minutes? Can we start right there and just consider what James is saying, his substrate that he's dealing with is the Sermon on the Mount, but his context that he's dealing with is the church in Jerusalem. Real people doing real life with real struggles with one another. 
Have you read the rest of your New Testament? In case you're wondering, if you think it's something I sort of conjured, have you read the rest of your New Testament? Have you understand the occasions of the, the letters from Paul written to the churches? They're called occasional letters because they're written for the occasion of some weird thing is going on in the church. He's writing them to deal with struggles in the local church. One right after another. He deals with division between Jew and Gentile. He deals with division between rich and poor. He deals with false teaching. Who has bewitched you? He deals with other false teaching. No, Jesus hasn't come back. Somebody's lying to you. Somebody's trying to fool you. He deals with all manner of... How about that? A spat over whether Paul or Apollos is better. There's nothing new under the sun, people of God. Nothing new under the sun is 2,000 years old. In this case, we're disappearing into the New Testament. In and among God's people, man, it's all over the place. Even a little wee, tiny little book, Philemon, deals with struggle and conflict between a, an escaped s- slave. It's, it's throughout our Bibles. How about lukewarm Laodicea? You're rich, but I'm going to spit you out, in my, out of my mouth because you're actually poor. How about sleeping Sardis? Have you read the letters? The letters to the churches in Revelation? Man, there's nothing new under the sun. And in case you've missed it, let me just encourage you to spend just a little bit of time in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Could you spend just a few minutes in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and maybe get a little context for what church life is actually like? When I was reading about what, what James is referencing, his context, bitter envy, what, what were the other things that he, he talked about? He, bitter envy and, and selfish ambition and partiality. And I'm thinking, man, that sounds like a really rough church. Huh. And then the more and more I started thinking about it, I'm like, no, that sounds like church. That sounds like church. And if anybody ever had occasion to never experience those things, I would say it would be the Jerusalem church. Do you realize the charter members of the Jerusalem church were probably folks who were at Pentecost? I mean, some of y'all are charter members of Crosspoint. Some of you have been around the church or churches long enough to you know how charter members kind of throw their weight around. That's never happened here that I know of, but sometimes around a church that's been around forever, this you know, ancient charter member kind of throws their weight around. Can you imagine throwing your weight around? I was at Pentecost. <laughs> well, that's everybody at the Church of Jerusalem. They had everything in common. Remember that? When you're reading the pages of Acts, you're going, oh, I want to be part of that church. That sounds awesome. They had everything in common. No one went without. That sounds like true utopia. That sounds like heaven on earth. And yet you read the book of James and bitter envy, partiality, and selfish ambition, and wars and fights and quarrels among you. You have to look at it and go, okay, well, let's just just start there and maybe we can exhale a little bit. Not if we experience conflict, but when we experience conflict. Man, we can start there and exhale and go, oh, okay. Conflict is apparently not something new, and it doesn't mean you're experiencing something unique because apparently there's nothing new under the sun, <laughs> starting with Adam blaming Eve and God for their sin and Eve blaming Satan. Conflict is as old as humankind. Can you imagine that conversation after, after God kicks them out of the garden? 
Adam and Eve are sitting around looking around. Adam's like, I cannot believe you blame me for that. Can you imagine that conversation? I cannot believe you blame me for that. Conflicts and quarrels and fights are not something new. And people, they're not something new in the local church either. Conflict is as old as man, and it's on nearly every page. But followers of Christ are to seek relentlessly, faithfully, absolutely, tirelessly peace. Man, it's simple, isn't it? I wish it were easy. It's a grueling venture. But the alternatives, the alternatives to conflict is bitterness that defiles many. And that's if you stick around. Another alternative is just walk away. I can't deal with this, so I'm out. Jesus says, followers of me are to seek peace. It's who you are. It's what you do. It's the next right thing. As I've been preaching through the Beatitudes, it's been interesting to see that almost without fail, there's some window into Jesus walking out a Beatitude. And this one holds true. Jesus walked out peace-seeking, peacemaking. Here's what it looked like. Here's the account. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's the beginning of chapter 26, and then there's a chapter full of agonizing peacemaking, and then another chapter full of agonizing bloodshedding. Man, it's gruesome. But talk about yielding a harvest of righteousness. Right? Talk about yielding a harvest of righteousness. Man, I'm glad that he didn't give up. I'm glad that he didn't say, ah, pragmatically, this isn't working. They're cheering for me on Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting for Barabbas by Thursday or Friday. Nailing him to a cross on Friday. My question to you is, what are you expecting in this notion of peacemaking? I hope you're expecting what our Bibles tell us you should expect. Ideally, a harvest of righteousness. As followers of Christ, we're not just walking out something that he modeled to. This is the good news. We're not just walking out something that he modeled. He gave us more than a model. He gave us the means to walk out this difficult work of peacemaking. To step out into those agonizingly hard situations where you might get clobbered and hit in the kisser. He gave us the means, and he is himself the means. He is the only way a man can say to his brother's murderer, I forgive you. I love you. I want the best for you. He is the only way that a judge 
after presiding, after pronouncing the sentence, after announcing the finding of the jury and pronouncing the sentence, then come around the bench to share the greatest peacemaking venture in the history of the world that is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, the peace between God and man won through the blood of Christ. Man, may we be that kind of people.